Welcome to the Uncomfortable Truth Podcast, hosted by the rock star of consulting, Alan Weiss. Be prepared to have your beliefs challenged and your behaviors questioned. Welcome back to the Uncomfortable Truth. It's my pleasure uh, to have Jeff Herman with me today, who is uh, one of the uh, most uh, profound uh, and longest live literary agents uh, and is uh, has been my literary agent. Uh, Jeff uh, opened his agency in the mid-80s, just to give you an idea of longevity. He's made over a thousand book deals, and he puts out the Jeff Herman Guide to Publishers, Editors, and Literary Agents, which I recommend to everyone. He constantly updates it. It's available on Amazon. There have been more than a half a million copies of that sold, by the way. Uh, after he graduated from Syracuse, uh, Jeff was riding on a subway on a hot summer day and spotted an ad stating, I found my job in the New York Times. He bought a copy, answered some help wanted ads, and a few days later, he was summoned to an interview with the publicity director at an independent publishing house. Uh, he was hired on the spot at $200 a week, uh, got himself put together, uh, and the department was Herman and his boss, who took her summer vacation the first week of the job, uh, and the rest is history. Uh, one of the things that Jeff made very popular at the outset was when bad things happen to good people, a massive bestseller, of course. So, Jeff, I want to welcome you to the podcast today. Thank you. Uh, Jeff and I met after I had published three books, and my fourth book was to be Confessions of a Consultant. Jeff was representing this. It was rejected about 12 or 15 times. And I'm driving back from Hartford with one of the very first cell phones in a car in New England, and it rings, and it's Jeff, and he's at McGraw Hill. And I went absolutely crazy, McGraw Hill. And I said to Jeff, they like the book. He said, no, they hate the book, but they want to know if you can write a book about how you make a million dollars as a solo consultant. I said, I can do it in six minutes. He said, I'll tell them six months. I heard him put his hand over the receiver. Uh, and he came back and he told me, we have a deal. Uh, it got me about a $25,000 or so advance. Uh, million Dollar Consulting's the franchise. It's been on the shelves for 30 years. It's in its sixth edition. And Jeff has also placed another, I don't know, 10 or 12 books with Wiley and McGraw-Hill and McMillan, as I recall. So he's got that kind of power. And so, Jeff, uh, you've been in this business a long time. A lot of listeners here uh, are looking to publish, have published, are mystified. You know, the, the deal was uh, hardcover books were going to disappear. They certainly have it. How has publishing changed in your tenure? Oh, quite a bit. Uh, when I first came in to it, uh, the, the primary force in publishing was independent publishers meaning uh, companies that were owned by individuals, sometimes legacy families going back several generations. Uh, but these were not companies that were publishing two or three books a year. These were companies publishing several hundred books a year and had catalogs of books in the many thousands, and they were self-sustaining. Uh, and each of these companies had the mark of the personality and the passion of the individuals. Just think of a, a family-owned hardware store. Uh, what happened over the past 20 years, and this has happened in many other industries, of course, is big corp. I don't know how else to, to call it. International big corp ate everything. They just all came in, and now they're eating each other. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was called the big six. That's, that's who owned 90% of book publishing. Uh, one of the six ate, ate the other, became the big five. 
another one ate the other. Now it's we're sort of at the 4.5 zone. Uh, and unfortunately, they control 80% of the uh, trade book market. Uh, and we have about 20%, which is still legacy independent publishing. And they're holding strong, thanks to their catalogs. So it's, I see. So I, I was notified recently, as you know, by a major publisher that they weren't taking on any new business book titles, although they'd maintained their catalog. But do you see that as a growing trend? Uh, yes. Yeah. There, uh, I, I don't mind saying the company, that's uh, McGraw-Hill. They actually tried to sell their trade book program. I mean, McGraw-Hill has many other entities that has nothing to do with book publishing. But they were trying to sell that operation. It's a good brand. They clearly were asking for too much money, and they, they wouldn't budge. Otherwise, someone would have bought them, uh, either another publisher or a hedge fund. Uh, so what happened was they realized that being a frontlist publisher, which means publishing new books twice a year, they were losing money doing that. But they have a catalog going back maybe almost 100 years of books, uh, which could be in the hundreds of thousands, their catalog. Uh, those are backlist books, cash cows. They don't require a lot, any real upfront investment. It's all word of mouth, mostly, and author-driven, if the authors are still alive. Uh, so, which you certainly are. I, I can prove that. So, what they decided to do was to just rely upon their backlist sales, and they fired probably about a hundred people, staff people, and editors. It's not just editors who were running the infrastructure for frontlist publishing, and now they're just a backlist publisher. Uh, something similar happened with American Management Association several years ago. They were actually bought by uh, Murdoch's Harper Collins, but then, for whatever reason, in their own wisdom, they decided, well, we really don't want that brand, American Management Association. I would think it was a mistake. Maybe they had good reasons. Uh, so they said, we'll eliminate the brand and we'll just carry the catalog. Uh, catalog sales have not done well because they eliminated the brand. As that was they, Amacom, right? Except, yeah, Amacom, exactly. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, you might be interested. You just reminded me of something. But to this day, my royalties on um, Million Dollar Consulting are still listed as confessions of a consultant 30 some odd years later. McGraw's never changed, changed the original. So tell me this, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, whenever it was, we heard that uh, hardcover, hard copy books were going to be in demise. Electronic books were going to take over everything. And last time I looked, uh, year to year, there's a slight decline in electronic book sales. And hardcover books are going pretty strong. Am I wrong about that? Or You're absolutely right. It's leveled. The uh, digital marketplace still consumes about 20 to 30% of all sales. And most of those are Kindle, of course, uh, or part of that platform. Uh, th there was no telling 10 years ago how far these books, what, what market share digital would take. So when it leveled off at about 25%, there was a big sigh of relief. Now, it goes by category. If you're talking about romance novels, which people can read two a day, I guess, uh, those are like 70% digital downloads. Uh, mysteries, uh, there's different, mostly fiction categories, which are well above 50%. 
digital, and then other categories in the nonfiction category, such as business, history, so on. It's more serious books where people prefer the physical. Now, in the in the genre uh, that in which I write, you know, business books or whatever you would you call it, self help, whatever you call it, um, it's not unusual uh, for someone to pop up and offer you one hundred twenty thousand, offer for one hundred twenty thousand to get you for a nanosecond on the New York Times bestseller list, uh, and they do this by distributing the purchases so that it doesn't look too suspicious, I guess. Uh, do you find that that's increasingly common? Uh, do people uh, take up that offer? What, what What is it with that? Well, they either have to have, obviously, the cash. Yeah. Or they have to have uh, ready credit cards because it's expensive. Yeah. Uh, people will do it either for, and it, there's no guarantee that it will work. So I know firms who do that. Uh, I believe it's very profitable. For them because they charge anywhere from 50 for a minimal program to well into the six figures. And it's an inorganic way to drive sales. They say we try for the New York Times, but will they also say, but we'll at least make the Wall Street Journal, if it's a business book, for instance, a bestseller list, which, which is not the same thing. Uh, if for vanity purposes you want it, yes, go ahead. If you think the book is a good sales leader and that uh, it'll be a really good legacy for you to always be able to say with legitimacy that I was a New York Times bestseller, you you have that now for all eternity. You may have only been on the book, on the list for one week. Yeah. And the reason is, is because it's not sustainable. It wasn't an organic process. It was forced. And the New York Times hates it. They do everything they can to preempt it, but they can only do so much. Do Amazon rankings mean anything? Yes, because they're the only rankings that I think have real legitimacy as far as what people are buying, because it represents more than 50% of the trade market. There is something that the insiders use that they spend lots of money on subscribing to, and the name keeps changing, the company name of who's doing it. But basically, it's sort of like uh, a Gallup poll of, of how many books have shipped out of publishers' warehouses to legitimate bookstores. It doesn't really capture special sales. They say they do, but it, they don't. And I'm skeptical about how many of the mom and pop and independent bookstores they capture who may use different distribution channels. But a lot of them use that, but I find that it tends to underrate most of most mid-list writers, whereas Amazon is a more accurate reflection. Uh, my experience is that when you launch a new book, uh, good reviews are more important than endless testimonials. Uh, but for people listening who might be thinking about doing their first book, what's your advice about that? That's a good question. And I don't know that it's been scientifically established. Uh, reviews on Amazon, if someone goes and they just routinely buy their book on Amazon, they hear about you and they see that there's all these four or five star reviews, you know, that's an encouragement to go through with the sale. If they see there's one star <laughs> reviews and they are dominant, uh, they would have to have a more compelling reason to buy the book. 
So yeah, that that's a challenge. Uh, endorsements, I think, are very valuable because it's a brand. You're being rebranded, and you're you're basically piggybacking another brand's yeah. credibility. Yeah. So sure, invaluable. How much, uh, you know, in speaking, we talk about steak and sizzle, right? So there's content and then there's promotion. How much of a book success is based on content versus really dramatic promotion of the book? And I'm thinking of some real stinkers that did very well on the list. Well, obviously, promotion, it, but it's a promotion just like you could you can spend millions of dollars promoting a new soup brand, but nobody's necessarily going to buy it because mm. It hasn't generate. It hasn't reached their heart and gut. So that's the so it the the real advantage belongs to people who are already established. Now the quality of their content may be constantly declining, but because they have that immediate credibility, uh, that that will sustain them for a long time. Uh, but I have seen unknown people spend a lot of money promoting a book and getting very few sales. And the reason is the same thing with any other consumer product. Uh, word of mouth is invaluable. And sometimes that's content driven. If you can somehow reach the people who are reaching everybody else and you actually get them to at least read some of your book and they like it, they will go tell their tribes. Oh, by the way, I read that, you know, Reese Witherspoon, for instance, which is primarily fiction. Uh, oh yeah, I read. You know, this is the one I'm choosing. These are others I really liked. People then will not. They'll just take that person's word for it, and they'll buy the book, even if they don't read it. You remind me of an old joke. The punchline is: the dogs just don't like the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've seen a lot of money go down the drain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, and I, it wasn't my idea to spend it. So I never took, you know, it was never on me. I, I've told people who come to me, you know, and in my community, there are people who've published a lot of books and people who've tried to publish books. I've told people, though, that as a first time attempt, you're better off if you can attract an agent, uh, because otherwise you're just going to be sort of a, a faceless name sitting on a, on a metaphorical pile, an electronic pile on some acquisition editor's desk. Uh, and consequently, assuming that you agree with that, what's the best way to attract an agent's attention other than a direct introduction from somebody the agent's already engaged with? Yes, good question. Uh, same as it would have been true years ago, it's best to first have an agent because agents will have the immediate and priority access to the editors and the editors are the acquisition people. Think of the agents as a brand an established brand. So you aren't known to the editor. You're not an existing brand. If an agent such as myself who has the relationships comes in, we're a brand. So that means, no, they're not necessarily going to acquire it. More than half the time they don't. But at least you have the access to this individual. And these individuals do not want to spend a lot of time, any time in most cases, going through going through what's known as the slush pile, which is everything that's unagented. So yes, definitely. How do you get an agent? Uh, it's good to write a letter to an agent. Sometimes they will post submissions at 
that'll fill up pretty quickly, that box. So I tell people to think outside of that box and see if there's a way that they can get the individual private mailbox, not the private one at home, but the one at the agency where they still do work, which is not flooded with submissions. There are ways to do that by simply looking to see what other email addresses are available about people. And then sometimes it's just, you know, Jack at William Morris or dot com, whatever, uh, instead of submissions. At, and Jack might be, you know, Jack, Jack Jones, you know, number one guy. So that's one thing I took. But yeah, you have to write what's called a query letter, but think of it as a pitch letter. Uh, query letter is hundreds of years old. I mean, it's like a hundred years old, that terminology. Pitch, yeah, let me just interrupt you. Do you prefer a query letter ahead of any kind of formal proposal or do you like to see them together? Uh, I can see them together, but it's not necessary because if I don't like the pitch, if it turns me off or it fails to turn me on and I'm getting hundreds of these a week, uh, I won't look at the proposal. So the but if I like the pitch, yeah, I'll look at the proposal. Or if I like the pitch and there's no proposal, I'll write back to you and tell you to send me the proposal as quickly as possible. So the, either way. Is the proposal a traditional kind of thing with an, an annotated table of contents, a competitive analysis, a marketing platform, sample chapter, that kind of thing? Yep. Hasn't really changed. Hasn't changed. No, the, the structure has not changed. What has changed is this there's this term that's been around now for about a dozen years or more called the platform and there's a lot of people talk about platforms all the time so there's a lot of miseducation like with a lot of things that get spread through 30 generations of people talking to each other uh but the publisher needs to know that you are a viable candidate to promote the book and to be a standard bearer for the book. That said, you may be writing about a subject that doesn't need you other than your expertise. Uh, I did a book by uh, a 14, she was 14 when she was a member of the Charles Manson uh, family as a 14 year old who had been basically thrown out by her parents as a lot of the girls were with him. Uh, she decided decades later it was time to tell her story. She actually went on to have a very constructive uh, life and never even told her children. Only her husband about her past. Changed her name, everything. And she had no platform. She never really made it in any of the news about Manson. But the publishers right away realized Charles Manson, family member, new family member, who isn't crazy, who, who isn't in jail who actually helped put him in jail. So that was the platform. It didn't matter who she was. So there are many ways to, you, there always has to be a platform, but it may be the subject. It doesn't have to be you. Seems to me that um, part of this platform, in most cases, you know, with the exception of the person you just named and people like that, the publisher wants to see that the author can support the initial press run, you know, 10,000 uh, books or whatever it is. In the old days, it was 5,000 books. But uh, they want to see that they're safe and that the author himself, herself, can get that first press run accomplished. Sound right? Yes. They want to know that they don't have to spend any money or expertise, which they have some money, but they don't have much expertise when it comes to marketing. Yeah, that's, well, God, is that true? They're, they're hiring uh, English majors in most cases, and they're saying, well, I know you want to be an editor, but here, you're now a publicity associate. 
maybe that you can become an editor later when there's more openings there. Uh, so the act, and they're not spending six figures to get people like what Procter and Gamble would do out of an MBA program. Okay, they're hiring English majors out of good schools, but with really no expertise in marketing. Uh, so they want to know that there's an author who has an understanding of how to sell something, is already selling something, and can add the book to what he or she, that, that infrastructure. The book can be put in there. And it's actually more than 10,000. I mean, it keeps changing. I would say now they're looking for 20,000 wow. out of the box. Oh. Uh, and, and that's because of the corporate influence. The new, the new model is we don't want to make nickels and dimes. We want to make dollars. And if we can't make dollars and $5 and $10, you know, whatever the model is, uh, why bother? Always seemed to me like the, the publishers, and this is before the big corporate takeovers, were like banks. And that is, when you need a bank loan, you can't get one. When you don't need them, all the banks want to give you money. And the publishers were sort of the same way. They give you a big advance if you're already a big author. Let me ask you something about uh, self-help kind of books, that market. George Carlin said once, if you're reading a book, it ain't self-help, which I kind of like. Uh, <laughs> well, he's helping the author. Well, right. <laughs> well, in these times of volatility, right, and disruption and post-pandemic, are self-help books, do you think, more important or more popular than ever? Uh, tell me about wh what that market's like. Uh, I can't say that they're more or less popular. Uh, I would say that the the mid-list is almost dead, meaning that they're no longer interested in just feeding the catalog. They're not looking for long-running mid-list books that can sell 100,000 copies uh, over 10 years, which used to be the model and is a good model. Now they're looking for immediate. So what you'll find is, again, there's people coming up with uh, weird formulations of self-help. It gets you to the same place. I mean, self-help bottom line hasn't changed in thousands of years. The idea is to feel better. The idea is to make more money. The idea is to do those kinds of things. But that doesn't, so now what's coming up is there's new kinds of brain technology that seems to be coming in with interesting titles, with people who have big seminar businesses, but they're taking you to the same place. It's just, there's a new sexy process involved to get you there. Jeff, I have two more questions for you. And the first one is one I I've known you for 33 years. I've never asked you this question. Uh, what do you read for pleasure? Uh, that's a, that's an excellent question. Uh, I like to read uh, weird history books. I like to read history books that aren't so weird, you know, whether it be World War II or Civil War. Uh, I, uh, you know, it's... I don't I don't read as much as I would like to. I end up uh, at at bedtime I'll start reading the New Yorker just because I like the writing, not necessarily the articles, but the writing. And then I'll usually fall asleep. So I'll always have three or four issues of the New Yorker backed up, you know, on my nightstand. Uh, so. That's interesting. We just came back from a cruise and I had a couple of issues backed up here. I like the writing too. I don't what I don't like is this political slant, but I do like I do like the writing. Um I was just wondering if you had time to read for yourself, you know, uh, given what not you as much as I would like. And I don't expect to anytime soon, because that would mean I'm not doing as as much as what I really want to do, which is work, to be uh, honest. I, I understand that. 
Uh, here's my last question. Uh, how can people reach you uh, in the in the right manner uh, to, to allow you to help them as expeditiously and correctly as possible? And where can they find out more about your business? Okay. So jeffherman.com is the website. J-E-F-F-H-E-R-M-A-N. Just straight through. .com is the website. Uh, but if you want to communicate with me and skip the submissions, which any, you know, a friend of Alan is a friend of mine, believe it or not. I mean, you know, and I mean that honestly, I'm not just saying it because Alan's sitting here. Uh, but uh, then go to Jeff, J-E-F-F, at jeffherman.com. And in the subject box, say I heard you on, you know, something like Alan Weiss, just say Alan or just say Alan or say Weiss. And then I'll know that it came through uh, this program. And I'll know that because, you know, you're, you're giving Alan what $2 billion or whatever, that you're a qualified individual uh, and yet you're serious and that you're doing the work that needs to be done. Uh, and I'll respect that. Uh, so that's how I would suggest doing it. Well, let me give Jeff one more endorsement here. Not that he needs it, but I will. I, I've published 50 something books. Uh, they're in 15 languages, and um, that, uh, and then there's another 12 uh, extra editions and so forth and so on. But Jeff has placed, I think, f the four best-selling books of all that I've had. And, and absolutely reliable. And the best thing is, when I'm full of crap, he tells me that. So there's certain projects. Not in those words. <laughs> no, we're never, certain projects never pursued, which probably saved me a lot of time. Uh, but um, it's good to see somebody in a profession through all the turbulence of all these years, continually successful. So, Jeff, pleasure knowing you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, and good luck to everybody. You've been listening to The Uncomfortable Truth with Alan Weiss. For free access to Alan's newsletters, audio and video resources, and for information about his global events and coaching communities, please visit alanweiss.com. Thanks for listening. Keep the faith.